morning. Um, this morning, I want to uh, continue in this series that I've been working through called The Secret to Life, where we're um, taking uh, bits and pieces from the Sermon on the Mount as found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we talked about that, you know, Jesus said, hey, you want to have the secret to a great life. We talked about the Greek word that he used there, makarios, which is the word for not just blessed, but supremely blessed, to have the best life ever. And he begins to strip away all of our preconceived notions about what a successful life looks like, turns it upside down, and begins to teach us what it really means to live in God. And so last week, uh, Jesus uh, talked about the call for anyone who's going to follow him to be different to live differently, to stand out, to be salt and, and light. And this week, Jesus raises the bar again. I'm going to skip all the way down to verse 38 in chapter 5, and then I'm going to pop back to chapter 7 and bring that into this message today. And so, as part of this message, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer them the other cheek also. Don't you just hate that verse? <laughs> never, yeah, never really embraced that one. And if anybody wants to sue you to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to walk one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Except for your kids, really. <laughs> Just draw the line there. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who wrong you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing any more than anybody else? Do not even the people who reject God do that? So then, be perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time you got a big old plank sticking out of your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother. Well, um, that passage is a pretty hard-hitting passage, and, and really the Sermon on the Mount is a pretty hard-hitting sermon, and it's not for the faint of heart, and not for the people who um, want to kind of live lightly because... Uh, Jesus asks us to go deep. Um, but 
I think that what that passage is a sobering reminder that the Christian faith is more than just saying that you know you believe that there's a God out there somewhere and that's what makes us a Christian. That's not what makes us a Christian. And if we call ourselves Christians, it's not enough just to say that we believe in God. In fact, the Bible says even the demons believe in God and shudder. So what sets us apart and makes us different than the demons if it's just about believing in God? It's not the full extent of our faith. And the Bible teaches that faith is way bigger than that. And that faith really is um, not passive. Um, It's an action. It's very active. Uh, In other words, that our beliefs affect our behavior. What we do, the way that we live our life is born out of what we believe in our heart of hearts, whether we're a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist or whatever. Our behavior is born out of what it is that we believe. And in the case of Jesus, he's saying that, that the action that is required... Um, is that we love people who aren't necessarily lovable and we love them in a way that is completely different than the world teaches us of what love is. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who wrong you. So let's get something out on the table like right off the bat. There are a whole lot of us that are not really touchy-feely people. And I know because you won't hug me after this service at all. You'd be like, what are you doing? And we don't really resonate with all this mushy stuff in the Bible, all this love stuff. It just seems a little too sappy, right? So let me begin by just kind of distinguishing um, the fact that there are really uh, three words that are used in the Greek language that mean love. And we're a limit, little limited, little limited, and get, gets a little confusing um, because we just have the one word love, and it's all in the way that we say it or that we use it that gives it that context, right? So, for example, there's the Greek word eros, which means it's a romantic love or sexual love. This word is not found in the New Testament, but it was used in that day. And you know, for us, if we're going to use love in this context, we go, I love you, honey. Right? I mean, it'd be like that romantic love. And the other word is philos, which is brotherly or sisterly love. This is used in the New Testament, the Bible, usually within the context of uh, the community that we're in as a church. And this would be when we're like, you know, we'd say something like, yo, bro, I love you, man. Right? Give a little man hug, pat him twice on the back. Or, sister, I love you. Give a little fist bump. Philo. Right? But then there is agape. Agape is a different kind of love. This is the love that is used primarily in the New Testament to describe the love of God. It actually is pronounced agape. And it is more of a divine, selfless love which means that you would go to any length to preserve the well-being of the person that you are loving. So agape is more of an action word than it is a feeling word. A person who loves with an agape love might or might not have warm, touchy-feely feelings toward the person they love. 
But they will, however, be concerned for that person's well-being and will do whatever possible to help that person when they are in need. So for a few examples, agape love is the love in which God had when he so loved the world, when he so loved you and me that he gave his only son to die on a cross so that we could be saved. That's agape love. Agape love is the love that a mother has for a child that she, it's a relentless, ruthless love that she would do anything within her power to protect that child. Agape love is a love that causes somebody unexpectedly to lay down their life for another person. So now you go, okay, you know, I can get behind that, right? It's not quite as mushy as maybe we're thinking. It's a little more cerebral. It's a little more action-based. It's more of how can I help? How can I um, contribute to your life? It's, it's an action. The problem is now not the what, it's the who. Because it gets down to who is it that Jesus wants us to love with that kind of love, that becomes the issue. Because Jesus is saying that the secret to having a great life is to live a life of agape, which is what makes it possible for us to turn the other cheek when we are slapped. Or to give somebody the shirt off your back who's trying to connive you or sue you or take advantage of you and you Give them your coat as well. Agape love is a love that surprises us in loving people that we maybe don't even like. People that have mistreated us. People that have broken our trust that we still love them, even though they may drive us nuts. Now, I'm going to give us a little one-word kind of caution here and say that doesn't mean that we drop our boundaries and that we have poor boundaries and that we become a doormat and we allow people to take advantage of us and we become victims. I don't think that that's what the case is, that when I'm negotiating a deal, I say, you know what, just take that extra million. It's okay, it's on me. I love you, right? No, it's not going to happen. The, the, the idea is that we love people unexpectedly in such a relentless way that it shocks and surprises and it takes it to a different level. So as we observed last week, when Jesus asks us to be salt and light, and he's calling us as Christians to stand out in a dark world and to be different than the rest of the culture that we're out there and experiencing, and one of the the most important ways that we distinguish ourselves as a follower of Jesus is the way we treat other people. Being good to those who are good to me, that's pretty easy to do. Being nice to nice people, being, you know, treating people great, who are great to me, who love me, that's all well and good. But treating people with agape love who are unkind to me, who have mistreated me, who have broken my trust, that's not a cakewalk. Because as Jesus puts it pretty clearly, he says, If you love those who love you, so what? Are you not even like the tax collectors doing that? Tax collectors were like the scum of the earth back then. And if you greet only your own people, 
What are you doing more than anybody else? Do not even people who reject God do that? So then, how are you being salt and light? How are you living in agape life if that is the extent, the full extent of your love? Jesus continues, I think, to strip away the superficiality of the way that we think life is all about, and in this case, the superficiality of what we know about love. And he says, okay, so you love your your family. Big deal. So you love the people in your life you consider friends. Wow, you get a merit badge. So what? How is that any different than the other people in the world who don't follow Jesus who love their family and friends? I mean, even the mafia loves the family, right? So Jesus is calling us to be salt and light and agape, love everybody, so how are we any different than the mob then? Using that example. How are we living counterculturally and distinct from the rest of the world if we just love the people that love us like everybody else in the rest of the world? I mean, I think a lot of us, if we were to ask, what is my primary mission and purpose in my life, a lot of us would say our families, wouldn't we? We would say, I want to invest more time and energy in my family. Not that that's wrong. That's great. It gets ignored a lot today. But it's not that noble. Jesus says, that's just a given. That's like the base case. Jesus is calling us to something more and invest beyond those people who we're just related to or just the people who like us or call us friends. That we love people that we don't even know or worse yet, may not even like. And that if you want to invest in your families, then we should raise kids then that we're raising them to be salt and light. And that if we want to invest in our marriages, that we inspire our husband and wife to work together to make a difference, to agape life. If if all we're doing is raising our family to someday raise a family, to someday raise a family, then we're just creating this endless cycle. And how do we ever break out of that and really contribute and invest in something more in this world? That doesn't minimize the work that it takes to love our families and to do all that. It just means that Jesus is asking us to go beyond the norm. How are we distinguishing ourselves as a follower of Jesus. This uh, really became clear to me uh, earlier this year, this whole idea of the agape love and, and loving beyond. And as many of you know, my wife and I have a home in Nicaragua, and we run a foundation there called Nika Angels, which is a ministry of Westridge. And uh, there are several people who work for us uh, down in Nicaragua, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit more next week. And there's a small group of construction workers who um, work for us, and they do not only work, but they also help to supervise our volunteers when they're on site and help us to, you know, do things correctly in the the construction process. And so I wanted to have a meeting with everybody. And so we all met, asked everybody to come to our home and uh, have breakfast, and we were going to get an update and talk about what's going on. And as we all sat around the table... One of the guys named Noe, he starts looking around the house, and 
he said that the three of them had actually been on the construction crew that built that house for the previous owner. And he was never ever, or they were never ever invited in to see the home when it was done. And as he looks around, he was very proud of their work. And it was, I mean, it's really incredible craftsmanship. So he should be proud. And then he went on to say that people such as myself, and he didn't say this, but what he was really saying was, Gringo, a gringo like myself, don't invite workers like them into their homes ever. It's simply something that is just not done. And I saw this as kind of an opening to agape. And so I said, well, last time I checked, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money I have or you don't have or what my skin color is or what your skin color is, at the end of the day, we're all going to end up in the same pine box in the ground. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And none of that will have mattered. And he couldn't believe it when I said it and he, he just had a tear in his eye as he was uh, looking at me and I was talking. And So I took it one step further. I said, look, you know, I grew up with nothing, and by American standards. And I happened to be born in the right country at the right time and caught a whole lot of lucky breaks. And I said, yes, I worked hard to build what I have, to build my own company, to have the money that I have and to have made the money that I've made. But truly, like, I have watched you work in a way that, you work just as hard in the hot sun and you have a gift and you contribute. And quite frankly, we couldn't do what we do without you guys. And so I'm just honored to be part of the same team as you. And in that moment, it really felt like we all became equals. Like I think that they perceive themselves differently in the context. And and that conversation really opened my eyes to, you know, a few things. One is that discrimination is alive and well. And there are a whole lot of us, and probably all of us to some extent or another, who judge other people by the way that we perceive them, based on their skin color or their religion or their culture or their economic status. I had several people tell me that there's no way that I could be friends with people in Nicaragua because they're so different than I am, which couldn't be further from the truth. Agape love goes beyond just helping the least of these get on their feet. Agape love is when you are willing to humble yourself to raise that other person, the least of these, up. And you give them a sense of respect and dignity. And you make sure that they feel agape. That they feel that they are a child of God. And I can tell you that when I go out and I work on that construction crew, that I put myself under the supervision of Noé and Cruz, and Frank, because they know way more than me. And if you've ever worked in Nicaragua, you know we take our orders from them. 
And we submit ourselves under them because just as important as helping them and to provide economic uh, help in those situations is to give those people who are the least of these a sense of dignity and respect and helping them to understand we're all the same. We're all just children of God trying to make it through this life together. And so when Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged, I think all of us have to pause and take note of what it is that we're judgmental about. Because as much as I pride myself on not being judgmental, there are times that I am judgmental. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take a look at that speck in your eye when all the time there's like this plank sticking out. You can't even get near that person. You've got a big old log sticking out of your head, right? You can't even get near you. How can I take that speck out? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own dang eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Another way of saying this is that we all got enough mess in our own life to focus in on. Focus in on your own mess. We ain't got time to be messing around with other people's mess. The good Lord knows I have had my share of struggles and failures in my life, stuff that I am ashamed of. And I know that I am just a messed up somebody who's been saved by the grace of God, and f- but for the grace of God go I. And by understanding that about myself, I can't sit up here on this stage and to pretend to be something that I am not. And if I ever do, you have my permission to physically remove me from this stage. I certainly have no room in my heart understanding who I am and what I have been through to judge anybody. And I think it all gets down to that one word, is that word grace. And this is foundationally the vision that Westridge was built on, to be a church that really could be never church as usual, and by that I mean countercultural, to be salt and light but to be ruthless in our attempt as a church to be a church that lives agape. The, the verse that drives this church more than anything else is this, and, and I'm, I'm, I don't have time to get into the whole story, but Jesus said this. He said, whoever has been forgiven of much loves much and accepts others freely, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. This is a driving force in our philosophy of ministry here at Westridge. Because what that's not saying is that God forgives some of us more than others. It's not saying that. Or that some people are worse sinners than anybody else. We're all a bunch of sinners and all sin is sin. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we're all in the same boat and that we're all a bunch of messed up sinners and ain't nobody any better than anybody else, right? What Jesus is saying is that some of us get it more than others. 
Some of us are willing to take a long, hard look at our own life and understand that we're sinners. And that we can be real and authentic about the shortcomings and the failures in our own life and realize we have our own mess. And the more honest we are about our failures, the more grateful we are for the grace of God. The more grateful we are for his forgiveness that we've received. And the more that we are then willing to accept others who are messed up people because we fundamentally understand that just because we may be on the other side of some of the bad issues that we've dealt with in our lives and they're going through it, that doesn't make me any better than them. Just because I'm not going through what they're going through right now or because I haven't failed today like they have failed today. It gives me no right to judge. And the people who don't acknowledge their own mess, their own sin... And those are the people who don't ask for forgiveness because somehow they've made it up in their head that I don't really need forgiveness for the sin in my life because my sin isn't as bad as their sin. I'm not as bad as that guy. Thank God I'm not as bad as that guy. There's always somebody worse than me. And so we can point the finger at others in order to deflect attention from our own stuff. I mean, that's really at the heart of judgmentalism, isn't it? Where we feel so insecure about ourselves that we look for the ugly in others so that we can push them down and at the same time lift ourselves up into a little bit of a higher position so that we can jump up on our high horse and look down on them and convince ourselves that we are somehow better. I'm better than you. I'm more mature than you. I'm spiritually more advanced than you. God loves me more than you. That's a spiritual arrogance that Jesus had no tolerance for, and that is the ugly part of the church that drives people away, and we will fight that all day long at ever entering this church. We judge people so much the time based on what we just see on the surface without ever looking inside to see who they really are. I'll give you an example. I know a guy who is all tatted up. And he has not just done time in the penitentiary once or twice. He's done three stints in the pen. And you hear that and you go, that's a bad guy. I don't want any part of that guy. But what if I told you that that same guy had fetal alcohol syndrome? He was born to an alcoholic mother. And he didn't have a shot from the beginning. And he was a raging alcoholic by the time he was 13. And what if I told you that that same guy's biological parents were both criminals who abandoned him when he was two years old. And he was found scrounging under a table for crumbs because he was so hungry in a home that he had been left in for days. Or that his biological parents, even though they abandoned him, they never allowed him to be adopted. And so that contributed to his 
identity and esteem issues throughout his entire life. But what if I told you that that guy That that guy's my brother. Because my parents took him in when he was abandoned to be part of our family. And what if I told you that this Thursday is the 16th year of his sobriety? He now owns his own business, is doing great. And the beautiful part is, after years of being a parent's worst nightmare, <laughs> 40 years, 40 years, that in the end, he became my dad's favorite. And what if I told you I couldn't be more proud that he's my brother? The man he's become and the odds he's overcome are unfathomable. He has um, such guilt and shame for the stuff in his life that and for the way that he treated me, he, like, every year sends me a set of coins for some reason as his penance. <laughs> so if any of you are coin collectors, I have a few. But he didn't do that on his own. He did that because my parents had an agape love for him where they never gave up. They were relentless for 40 years, 40 years. Man, I'd have dismissed that guy a long time ago. 40 years they stood by him and loved him relentlessly until he finally turned it around. And it was that agape love that transformed him. That's the kind of love we're talking about. It is transformative. It is not easy. It is hard. It is tough. And the stuff that I hate is he was a pastor's kid who was judged by the church, by people in the church, who he still to this day, you know, feels rejected by the church because of who he was, and I hate that. God never rejected any of us. And he asked us to love like that, in this relentless love. I love the line from that song that Michael sang earlier. It says, take the time to peel away the layers, and you'll find this true sadness in everybody. The stuff people have to overcome, their scars and their hurt and their pain. And that's why Jesus says, instead of trying to always put ourselves up in a higher position of judgment, he's calling us to live differently. And instead of always trying to make ourselves look good and to protect our image, instead, live agape in be humble. Be willing to humble ourselves and value others. Take ourselves and put others above us. And to take the people who are the least of these and people who are hurting and, and put them on our backs. 
so that we can get under them and help to lift them up. Not kick dirt in their face when they're lying there bleeding in the street, needing our love the most. I'll wrap it up with this. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus ends chapter 5 in a, pretty, in a way that seems pretty antithetical because he says at the end of this chapter, he says, be perfect. Right? Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is another one of those examples where the Greek word and the English word don't necessarily match up because in the Greek it means something a little different. The Greek word that he uses there for perfect means something that has become mature or complete. It has the idea that the perfect person is not somebody who is not flawed because we all are or someone who has not sinned because we have all sinned. But instead, it has the idea that we finally, after going through all the crap, we have finally reached our goal in, and fulfilled our purpose, which is that we finally become the people of agape, the people of God, the people that God created us to be from the very beginning, people who are salt and light, and live an agape life. And Jesus says, now that, that, that's a perfect life.